Hello, and welcome to the Trail and Adventure Motorbike Podcast. With me, Clive Barber, and my good mate, Noel Tom. For the days when you can't ride your bike, there's always the Trail and Adventure Motorbike Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. Now, I know we said we wouldn't ever mention him again, but it seemed like a fairly good time to get Greg Villalobos back on the podcast talk about all things adventure spec mainly in the light that they've got four new pieces of clothing coming along mainly wet weather waterproof gear we thought it'd be interesting to chat to him see what's coming and to see how they arrived at those decisions to release those bits of kit to talk about some of the the design process etc we also have a bit of a catch-up with greg and talk about our next upcoming film trip and we'll let you know where we're going and what we're going to be doing. Season four, episode three. Let's get on with it. What's happened there, Noel? <laughs> Last week we said no more Ollie Moto, and he's taken us to our word and he's clearing off for a couple of years, <laughs> which is great because we don't have to bother with him anymore. Mm-hmm. And no more bloody Greg Villa Lobos, and look who's here. Why did we say no more Greg Villalobos? I don't remember that. Bit. We were just being funny. Is it? Oh, okay. It's kind of difficult when he's one of your mates, isn't it, really? When you're riding gang. Well, I'll have it be known that I didn't invite myself onto this uh, episode. I was invited. <laughs> you didn't. You were invited. And the reason I invited you is because you, you did an announcement recently about... So really, you're Greg Villalobos from Adventure Spec today. Yeah, today, I for this, if you want, I will put my Adventure Spec hat on. Not literally. You don't do any hats. No, because yeah, then people hats. go, where can I buy the Adventure Spec hat for? I'm like, ah, it's imaginary. <laughs> but I did, I did invite Greg along because he announced, is it four new pieces of kit that no doubt we will be modelling in the summer on our next trip. So I thought it'd be good to get Greg along to come in and um, talk about the stuff they've, they're have they bringing out, why they're bringing it out, maybe a little bit of thinking behind why they're bringing out, what they're bringing out. Sound all right? Yeah, yeah, no, it sounds good. Like, we've got quite a bit of stuff in development, and I'm kind of talking about it at appropriate times. But my job at the moment is looking ahead into the next kind of year to three years, really, in terms of product development. We're quite well on with some stuff, and we're just starting with other stuff. And then you've got things like, I mean, I ha- I've been doing comms and marketing for kind of 20 years now, but I've not done a huge amount of product development stuff so i was surprised when i picked up a lot of this work within adventure spec and and i started kind of looking at the color colors that we were going to be bringing in and started working with our factory and our material suppliers and it was mind-bending to start to understand how long it takes to just introduce a new color that is not an off-the-shelf color the process involved and just the time scales and i was just i was talking with um got a friend who works he's very senior in another kind of outdoor manufacturer everyone will know he was telling me how they are presenting their what are we so we're in january 23 and they are presenting their i think 2025 range to retailers to make buying decisions you know, so they're literally two years ahead. So whatever you see on the shelves now, but you know, they're work, they've already put everything in place for next spring and the spring after, you know, it's, it's crazy when you think that the, the big guys are working that far ahead, like we're not that big, but still we are working ahead. 
That doesn't answer your question, really, but we can go into that in more detail if you want. But what is it? I mean, like you, you were saying it took a lot longer. Did you imagine it would be months? Well, obviously, you've just said, said what it is, but it's not months, it's years. Well, it, I mean, it is, it is months. But so let's say, for example, the single track jacket, which started as kind of a light silver and then became a, a darker gray. It's currently blue. So the key, there are two key materials and three colors. One is the Kevlar shoulders, which doesn't change. The abrasion panels. We've got black shoulders in a waterproof material. And then the body previously was like gray. And so we said, right, we wanted to introduce blue. There's a couple of elements to this, but one element is in, in order to introduce that blue, you have to, first of all, choose the color. I'm using a Pantone chart, but you can use fabric charts and all the rest of it. And then you give that to your fabric supplier. So Steve, and he goes off, he's really good at, at this. And basically the, the color in your hand in a Pantone chart never accurately fully is recreated on fabrics. It's different under different lighting conditions and et cetera, et cetera. So then he goes off to the, the place that manufactures the fabric and they get made in big rolls, like 500 meter rolls. They create these little test strips, which are kind of like at most 10 centimeter square. And they'll go away and, and do a series of lab dips, lab dyes, which are taking what they think is the blue you want and doing a few shades either side of that. And that process in itself can take weeks. And then that gets sent back and you get to see it and you're then got to make your decisions or, or further refine it and get some more made, which can take weeks. So you're talking like, you know, two to three months just for that bit. And then you choose, okay, I want that blue. And you're committing then to dyeing like 500 meters of fabric because that's the minimum quantities. It sounds like it, it's potluck as to whether you end up with the color that you originally I, chose. I think the more you do it, the better you'll get at it. But I haven't been doing it that. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm like, you know, my nails are bitten down, like waiting for the first samples to come back because I don't really know what that fabric is going to look like made up. So there's always a bit of like, uh, but like I said, that's largely through my inexperience, but you know, people that are doing this longer may be better at it than I am. When people are talking about, oh, can't you just add a different color, whatever, whatever, there are these things called minimum order quantities, MOQs. And that is basically a factory saying the minimum we will die for you is or, or manufacture in this material is like 500 meters. And then you got to go, right, well, each garment uses up 1.1 meters of fabric. So that 500 meters is going to, with a bit of wastage is going to equate to like 400 units. And then you got to say, right, so how long is it going to take us to sell through 400 units? And all of these things are kind of fed into the internal team, like bu making buying decisions about how, and, and then funding the, the purchase of all that stuff, you know, it's, it's quite a, an in-depth process really with lots of client, different moving parts. And I'm envious of bigger manufacturers that have been doing this longer and operating at a certain scale where it's much, it seems to be simpler to add new colors and, and do new, you know, but then again, they are also taking risk by adding new colors that they don't know if they're going to be able to sell, but yeah, it's uh, for a small manufacture it's it's a little bit daunting but i think we're kind of doing okay presumably you're you are so small that you can't take a risk with colors i mean just having a blue i mean blue is pretty neutral but everybody's going to be comfortable with blue and it is a nice color it's okay you're not going to suddenly go well, let's do a yellow one 
if you end up with 400 units that nobody really wants because they're a ridiculous colour, then that's a huge expense and loss for you. That you. It is, it is. And, and kind of my thoughts on that are, I mean, if you go into a more straight down the line motorcycle clothing it's retailer. Black, black, black. It's just black everywhere, you know, <laughs> with a bit of red here or a bit of a dash of color, but largely it's black. You know, motorcycle kit is largely bought by middle-aged men who are not necessarily that adventurous in their motorcycle clothing. And so you kind of say, okay, here's a big, bright, bold color one. And that's the one that you use for your marketing. And that's the one that gets people attention and you go and people go, oh yeah, yeah, I love it. I love it. Um, do you do it in black? You know, because not that many people are that bold or brave to kind of you know, buy that kind of big in your face color. And so like, yeah, you're, you're right. It is risky and it is a challenge to kind of figure out what colors to introduce that are going to be pushing us in the direction we want, but aren't going to be alienating people and making people feel uncomfortable wearing it. I don't see adventure spec clothing as motorcycle clothing per se, straight down the line, which is how I describe, you know, what a lot of other manufacturers are doing. It's becoming clearer to me in, in my thinking about this and through our experiences of being out riding and using this stuff. It's more about it being outdoor clothing, outdoor gear that is tailored for adventure motorcyclists. So my aspiration or my kind of um, driving force for this is if I went into here in the UK, our big outdoor retailers are someone like Cotswolds Outdoors. And you've got your Rab over there and you've got your North Face and your Arcteryx. And I almost see like, oh, and there's the adventure spec section. And, and my aspiration is that I, I know that they are not going to sell motorcycle gear, but the design and color choices that we're pushing forwards are really more around what kind of kit do you need to be in the outdoors? So what does it, how does it function? How does it look? How does it feel? What color is it? All that kind of stuff. So it sits alongside those other guys doing that stuff, but with the added protection, safety features that you need to be on your motorcycle. And that's really important to me because in here in Europe and the way that we, as in you guys and me and, and us and collectively, and a lot of people doing the Trans-Euro Trail, we're going out spending time in the outdoors in the hills in kind of wilderness and we happen to be using motorcycles to to reach those places but i don't really see us as being hugely different to people on mountain bikes gravel bikes walkers we are far cooler though we're on motorbikes tell the story of what happened the other day because that was pretty sweet wasn't it so i was out shooting some stuff and i had my big camera out and there was um this couple walking up and I think he had a rab puffer jacket on and she had an Alpkit puffer jacket on. And they said, oh, yeah, you know, we saw you with your big camera and we were having bets on whether or not you're doing a photo shoot. And we were like, oh, it's funny you say that. You know, they thought we were photographing the bikes. But I was like, I work for this company, Adventure Spec, and I'm just here shooting some of the new gear. And, she, you know, she didn't know anything about bikes or anything. And she just kind of like within a heartbeat, I mean, she kind of just stood and like took us in and then said, oh, right. So you make like outdoor gear that you can use on your motorbike. And I was like boom you know like I was so so happy that she just got it straight away because yeah. we were stood there wearing essentially the same gear that they were wearing but it had armor in it and it had double a abrasion resistance qualities but to all extent if you took the bikes away we could have and our helmets and gloves we could have just been walking up that hill the same as them 
I, that was like a real validation because that's really where I want to go with this. We have ridden our bikes into town squares and parked next to a big church and gone and had a cup of coffee in a local Spanish kind of cafe and i don't think any of us felt hugely out of place other than not being able to speak spanish i think that would have been different if we were in fluorescent day glow kind of gear that felt more at home on a snowboarding slope or something like that you know different parts of the world is different you know but here in europe if you're going to do what we do you're going to be in and out of villages and doing stuff in the countryside and I think the big thing for me is that we look like we're part of that environment. So you've chosen your colours. The next thing is you, you're going to make some. You've made well. You've obviously already made your decisions to to make some additional items to go into your range. Tell us what you're bringing out and and how did you reach the decision to make to to bring those pieces of kit out? Large part of what we're doing is taking our existing range and adding new colours over time. So there's that element of it. One of the big things that's been missing from our range and like people ask us about it all the time is the waterproof pant. So we've got the linesman pant, we've got the Mongolia pant, the Atacama pant. We've got waterproof jackets, the single track and the aquapat jacket. But we know that if you go out without a waterproof pant in in Europe, any even in summer, you know, if you're going on a multi-day thing, you're a brave man to not <laughs> have something waterproof on to put on the bottoms. And for one reason or another, that product has evaded us up to this point for a few different reasons, some of them logistic and all the rest of it. But also designing uh, riding pants is really difficult. It's really difficult to get a good fit. The, the Mongolia pant an Atacama pant that was developed for Linden to do the, the Dakar. That was one of the four, first products. And if you look at those pants, they were really, really good fit, but there's so many different panels. And so it took so long to get that. Cause if you think about it, we've as motorcyclists, we've got this like weird requirement that we need our kit to be comfortable, sat down, and fit in, in the right place and then also do the same thing stood up now if you are just on a touring bike you probably just most of the time just need it to fit when you're sat down because when you get up you go to the hotel and you take it off and whatever you're not spending a huge amount of time walking around in it but that's also why you see a lot of saggy ass riding kit because when you stand up the the bum just doesn't fit in the right place because it's cut for you sitting. The other element of that is the armor, like the, the knee armor, especially you need it to sit in the right place. Now, trail, dual sport, adventure riders doing stuff that we do, you're riding stood up and you're riding sat down. And then you're also getting off and maybe wearing that kit while you put your tent up and walk around the village and whatever. So getting pants to fit is challenging, not impossible because people do it, but it is, is that why a membrane didn't go into it or was it just way too complicated or too expensive to put a waterproof membrane in as well? A waterproof membrane in like the Mongolia pant. Yeah. So the interesting thing with the Mongolia pant is there is a, uh, that material is backed. There, there is waterproofing in the majority of that material. But the thing that makes on that, on that pant particularly, there are fabric panels that actually are waterproof and there are fabric panels that aren't. So uh, kind of around the knees, there's these like rib stretch sections, which obviously aren't. The other thing is the garment is not taped. So really, unless a uh, garment is seam taped, 
you mm. can't really call it waterproof because the water, the nature of sewing stuff together means you have to put thousands of little holes through where you sew. And that's why you use seam tape on the back of it to basically tape up those kind of imperfections that you've put in. And so the Mongolia plant is not seam tape. Now it is actually fairly waterproof, but it's not fully waterproof. So yeah, so I, so there are, there are a mixture of materials in the Mongolia pan. If you were going to take the Mongolia pan and make it waterproof, it wouldn't be the Mongolia pan because you couldn't waterproof a lot of the panels that are used in there, which are there to allow so much stretch in, you know, in the crotch area around the knees, all the rest of it. What I'm quite excited about is that we finally got to a well on our way of our prototyping stages of three products and one more that is a little bit earlier. So the one that's earlier that we're, I'm really pushing to get out this year, but might, hopefully it will, is a, is a waterproof overpant. That's essentially, I have a waterproof overpant that I put on over my linesman pant, but it's not made by us. It's made by someone else. I think we've all, we've all got them and they tend to be just quite cheap kind of wear as a last resort if it's absolutely you know pissing down with rain put them on but most of the time if it, it sits in the bag the challenge with that overpant thing is quite often you you were quite hard on our trousers they're rubbing against the bike they're getting caught on the foot pegs they're melting on the exhaust pipe if it's not waterproof and the material is quite tough and robust like in the linesman pant or the mongolia or that material is designed to kind of withstand all of the those those things and they're quite durable. The minute you put something waterproof into that mix, it creates quite an interesting challenge. Now, I see a lot of the people in our community saying, essentially, they're, they're waterproof overpants. They're kind of disposable. I'm going to use it for one season, two seasons. I know it's going to get trashed and I'll replace it. And so, therefore, I'm not going to spend a ridiculous amount of money on this thing that I'm going to give a hard life. So what is that? What is that amount of money? That's something you've got to... I think we'll all have different opinions on what that amount of money is. <laughs> some people will spend more, some people will spend less, naming no names in this group. <laughs> <laughs> but but um, yeah, that is the challenge because do you make some, do we make something that is, is better than that, that you're going to spend a bit more money in because it's more waterproof and it fits better and it's a higher quality product? Or do we say, right, we need to be making a disposable thing alongside other stuff? The key thing there is the more features you build into a product, generally speaking, the, the more it costs. So like for every zip or buckle like you put in, you know, let's say, for example, you put a, like some fancy zip up that goes all the way up the side, you know, that each that zip might cost 15 quid for each side. So that's 30 quid just on the zips. That's in manufacturing costs, you know, you can at least double that by the time it gets to the punter. And so you go, all of a sudden, that 40 euro pair <laughs> of pants is 100 euros because you've put two big zips on on each side. And so therefore, it's not just about making like the perfect, perfect, perfect. It's about making the thing that that people want, will use and will come in at the right price point, especially now. I don't think we're going into a period of history where everyone is feeling particularly wealthy. We are mindful of what people are willing to spend for this gear. So I've talked quite a long time about that product and, and, and we're at the moment, I'm just calling it the walk for over, over plant. Um, I've probably said as much as I can say, but it is in development. 
The other two, th three things that I, I can talk a bit more about is there's the single track waterproof pants. So we're familiar with the single track jacket, which is an over, over jacket, waterproof over jacket, very much like a walking jacket. It's got a high hydrostatic head. It's very waterproof. It's got the Kevlar stuff on the shoulders. The single track pant is how to describe it. It's, it's more robust than the single track jacket. It is the most comparable thing is to say it is a waterproof version of the Mongolia pant. It does not have the same level of um, stretchiness and, and all the rest of it, but it's the kind of pant that I would put on and wear in a British winter to go trail riding. It's not going to get trashed. It's not going to melt on your exhaust or rip at the first sign of a, a foot peg. It is made of a, a heavier duty three-layer waterproof fabric. It's not, like I said, it's not as lightweight as the, the jacket because it needs to be tougher. Um, but it definitely sits in that line. This isn't an overpant. This is an actual... No, this is not an overpant. This is something that you, would, you wouldn't really be expected to layer the, this by putting taking it on and putting it off. It's, you wouldn't really wear like the linesman pant underneath. You would put on a base layer, core base layer if you needed to. You would put on your own knee armor. The single track pant is not going to come with knee armor, uh, really because it's not going to be CE certified because really we're, we're saying this is for off-road use, just like the waterproof single track jacket. It's designed as a, an, a waterproof off-road pant and we're pulling over. I think one of the reasons why our, our Mongolia pant was so successful, we put a lot of time and effort into designing the boot closure around the bottom and people with big boots can wear that pant and we're pulling that lower boot closure over onto the single track pant as well you know i'm, I'm really excited by that we, we've had like the first prototype we'll be testing that more and i'm really hopeful that we get that finished this year because i know a lot of people have been kind of asking about it will it have hip armor it will not be ce certified so there is no armor in it it is cut so that you can wear your own armor underneath it which neatly uh, brings me into like the next one. So we've got quite far along the product development line is the gravel jacket and pant, which is a gravel suit. And really the name, the gravel jacket pant is, it's really a, a, an adventure touring. It's a lightweight adventure touring suit that is designed for if you're going mean, to, so for example, um, so Thomas, who we know over in Norway, I've talked to him about our stuff in the past, our clothing, and he's not really kind of, He's basically, I think in his, I'll paraphrase as best I can, but he was probably something like, oh, I'm not interested in that layering shit. It doesn't work for here in Norway. <laughs> I just want to put on one waterproof thing. And, you know, when I leave in the morning, it's sunny and by lunchtime it's raining. And that's just what the riding is over here. I think the other element of like riding in Scandinavia and on, on that kind of adventure touring is you're not necessarily doing really hard technical terrain where you're generating your own body heat and therefore needing to strip layers or put layers on depending on kind of what you're doing it's very much more you're riding gravel for many many hours and so that's what this suit is designed it's taking everything we know about all we've everything we've done with layers and and lightweight clothing and all the rest of it and we've pulled it into this this gravel suit which will be CE certified so it will include armor it will the jacket will include armor the pant will include armor the jacket zips into the pants it's it's I, I guess it's much more a product that people that are that haven't done a lot of off-road stuff and have mostly just done road touring kind of stuff they'll be more they'll get it like I have to work quite hard to explain to people what ADV layering is 
for people that have never done what we do and they've just ridden their their big bikes all over the place. I think this gravel suit is something they'll they'll pick up, they'll see, and they'll understand it straight away. The the pant, the gravel pant, and the single track are essentially kind of this, a very very similar product, cut slightly different, but the waterproofing, the the largely the construction is the same. The gravel pant will have the armor in the in the knees and the hips, and everything is uh, abrasion tested and comes out with a CE certificate at the end of it. Sounds great. Everything's designed to be interchangeable and work together. So you could wear the gravel jacket with the Mongolia pant if you wanted, or you could wear the single track jacket with the gravel pant, you know, but really the the gravel jacket and pant are, they're two different items. It's not like you're going to have to buy them together. Should you come up with some scenarios? So, okay, you're doing the school run in the car. What do you wear? The school run in the car? Yeah. yeah well, if it's not raining, I'll probably just stick my Baltic uh, hybrid jacket on and off I go. You do, though, don't you? You just wear it all the time. Okay, you're going to a wedding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you got me on that one. <laughs> Depends whose wedding it is, doesn't it? I would happily have my single track jacket in the car in case it started raining. When you design these garments, like you mentioned the, the christening. What about christening? <laughs> So, uh, you say about the outdoor industry and how you, you know you want to sort of fit into that in, in, to a certain degree. I mean, I think the outdoor industry is sort of famous for changing things too quickly. You know, they'll bring out a new jacket every year, whether they need to bring a jacket out every year or not. When you're designing these garments at Adventure Spec, how long a life do you feel they have in terms of design? It's interesting. I was talking to my my friend about this recently. So if you look at, say, the big outdoor retailers, the Rabs, the Outkit, sorry, not Outkit, the um, North Faces and Arcteryx, like they are operating on that seasonal model, spring, summer 2023, which will be different to spring, summer 2024. And so their product cycles are dictated by annual lifespans. And they're in a quite a traditional retail model because the, the shops are basically selling season appropriate gear every year and so by the end of the season you'll get your sale and then the new stuff will come in etc if you look at alpkit they've got stuff in their product line that has been there from day one obviously they've added a lot of product as they've grown but they're still making stuff that they were making three four five six years ago those products have been tweaked and changed there's obviously new colors maybe the cut has changed the feature might have changed the more people use the gear and the more feedback you get the more you know how to refine it i think that's where we're at right now is there's no huge appetite to discontinue a product unless it's clear that people aren't buying it people often give us feedback sometime unsolicited sometimes is solicited but you know our, our our ears are open to people's experiences of using the gear and when enough people start saying the same thing you know that that's something that you should pay attention to and start looking at tweaking um we have a section on our website forward slash product development i think it is generally feedback on adventure spec is really really positive not just for the kit but the, the the customer service before you even work there, uh, I questioned a um, cost of postage, and I think Dave dealt with it and went, "Yeah, it's just a standard rate. It usually works out better for people that way. Don't worry, I'll send you the thing because the thing was just a small thing, and he just sent it me for free, and it was just like you've got a customer for life here. So that that's really good. But we get people messaging us going, "Can you have a word with Greg about such and such?" So, that, so you do have some customer service issues, and and do you want to kind of talk about that? I guess the most important thing to say is 
we're a small team, we care, and we try really, really bloody hard. <laughs> and that any small business that is going through a period of growth has challenging times. It's not always straightforward. And sometimes you're sailing and sometimes you're fighting fires. It's that typical thing of like the image that you put out is a beautiful swan sliding gracefully down the lake and underneath there's this like you know crazy kind of paddling going on in some ways my job is to do the nice graceful swan bit because my job is largely around our kind of comms and our you know what we put out and what i'm putting out there is the good bit behind the scenes there's a huge amount of crazy paddling going on by not very many people so our current setup is we have three warehouses around the world in one in the uk in east yorkshire it's not in our office it is uh, somewhere else in yorkshire we've got one in europe uh, in belgium and one in america in colorado what that allows us to do is serve good chunk of the world really effectively with lower shipping rates faster service and uh, if you're in those countries or territories, no import duties. Are, they, are these places with adventure spec written over the door or are they distribution centers? Do you? No, we're not, them? we're not kind of big, you know, there'll be an adventure spec logo somewhere, somewhere, but you know, we are sharing warehouse space with lots of other companies. Essentially the people in those warehouses are taking orders that are formatted in a certain way that go onto a barcode scanner, they go to a cardboard box, they scan the box, make sure that that's the right product, put it in, ship it out. You know, that is the service that they are offering. And that is the way the world works now. Yeah, it, it is. I work with software, I work with big companies, and that's the way, you know, people selling goods, that's the way they operate generally. The days of all of our product being in our own warehouse in Yorkshire and Dave and uh, a few other guys running around packing boxes, if we were operating in that same way, if you bought something from us in France or anywhere in the EU, it would take longer, shipping would cost more, and when you received your product, you would get another bill, an import bill. Same if you're in America. On the one hand, yes, it was a lovely period of time where it was really easy to throw in a sticker, throw in a part, whatever, whatever. That was small adventure spec. And we are now a different adventure spec that operating differently. We had a really rough ride, just like many other businesses on the back of Brexit. Chris especially saw what the impact of Brexit was going to be and started this process of getting us out into distribution centers. The consequence of that is in order to get the barcode scanner in Colorado and Belgium doing what you need it to do, it needs to connect to their system that they have in their warehouses. And that system needs to connect to our e-commerce system and all of the things that are going on our, on our website. That is actually really, really hard. <laughs> it's starting to make sense now because it's possible that I'm actually more to blame than you are because I actually implement those systems. <laughs> so people actually come in directly to the podcast to complain. Potentially, it's, it's actually more my fault than yours. So apologies, keep the complaints <laughs> coming into the podcast, everybody. Don't, by the way, I'm joking. So here's the thing, right? When it works, oh my God, it is so smooth. You know, you go on our website, the product is in stock, you buy it, you know, you're, you're in Portugal and you buy it. And two days later, the parcel, DHL parcel arrives and you're like, wow, that was so smooth. That was amazing. Um, when stuff doesn't quite work out for one, whatever reason, 
it gets picked up by, we have two Daves, Dave Lomax and Dave Logan, who look after the help desk and the logistics. And they basically work their backsides off to try and resolve and fix these problems. I would like to think that some of the flack that we were getting has, or a lot of it has died down because our systems are working pretty well now. There's occasional things that where uh, something falls through the gaps, but largely they're working well. I'll be the first to admit on the back of the stuff with Brexit and then COVID, there was a period of time where our systems were far from working properly. And I think that's where a lot of the frustration came from customers kind of not being able to kind of contact us or, or get what they needed. But I'm really, really glad to say that that is in the past now. <laughs> it it, it so, was hard, but we, we're through it. And I, I th- I'd like to think the majority of people's experiences are good. So what is the best way for people to contact you on the rare occasion that they do have an issue? Our help desk is an online form that is you use on our website. And when you send us a ticket, there's a few questions on there that says, what country are you? What bike do you ride? It's just helpful. And then you send in. The important thing there is that Let's say you've bought something from us and you need to ask us a question or there's an issue or something like that. The fact that you bought it from us means that you have an account with us. And so when we receive that help desk ticket from your email, that's automatically logged or essentially put into your file. And so all correspondence that comes through that system goes into your file which means that we have a, a really easy way to kind of look through that file to see, find the thing that is an issue and resolve it really, really quickly. The problem happens when your friends on WhatsApp say, yeah, here's Greg's <laughs> WhatsApp address. Why don't you just send him a message? And I'm like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> Do not send people to my WhatsApp or personal email. Okay, because that is when it pulls all of our resource, slows everything down. And I have no idea who these people are, what they for. I don't know what the history is. It was one of the Adams. We had to help our friend Adam. Is really unhelpful when people try to contact us outside of the designated tools that we have specifically built to help people. Don't look him in the eye. Don't look him in the eye. It's so funny that... You've you've put Tom Cruise as his moniker on the on this Teams meeting. It's just the same rules for Tom. <laughs> you can't contact him directly. I understand that sometimes people would just like to pick up the phone and have a chat with us. There may be a point in the future where we are operating a scale where we can put enough resources in to have someone sat there next to the phone all day. I mean, don't forget, we are operating globally, you know. So, you know, we're working in the UK, America, you know, we sell stuff to New Zealand, you know. So right now, the the best way to get help or get an answer is through our help desk uh, via our website. How many people work for AdventureSpec in the UK? Uh, in the UK, yeah. it's like me, Chris and Dave. But I mean, if you add in all the, the, the people that are doing the after sales and the... Well, they're not in the UK. So, oh, right. so it's me, Chris and really? Dave. There's a warehouse, you know, that we, so they employ, I don't know how many people they employ, I don't know, but there's the warehouse. And then Maria and Dave are in Italy. So Dave, Dave Logan helps on help desk and Maria helps me on social and that's it. You know, there's like accountants and stuff and accountant around and basically everything that you see is being done by 
those few people. You know, I think that'll surprise got, a lot of people. I thought you were going to say it real off at least 10 names then. No, no, no. Yeah. We've got our, we've got our factory and they've got staff and we've got our team over there and core team that we work with. And, you know, once you start like going out that way, it does grow exponentially. But if you say like the core team of adventure, we are doing a huge amount with very little, the point of why do you not do t-shirts or why do you not do beanies is largely because we have so little overflow resource to kind of yeah. do that stuff. You know? Yeah. Well, I see that now. Yeah. Brill. So can we have our friend Greg back now? Can we, can we stop being so corporate? <laughs> I'll take my adventure spec hat off. It's now been removed. So where are we going on our trip this year? So last year we went... Because this is the way it works. He, I think we said this before he tells us, doesn't that? There's no discussion. <laughs> this is just where we're going. Because he's lining up some ducks. He's getting. He's aligning moons. Listen, he's got some top listen, secret right? stuff going on. The minute anyone else fucking takes over and says this is where we're going i will follow them yeah all right oh, i thought you're gonna say dictatorships work not that no at all well they do until the the dictator's killed by his friends in the forest in Scotland. no one is forcing you to come and no one is putting any barriers in the way to anyone else actually taking a lead and organizing well the impression you were giving me was that you you're sorting out something very special and very secret yeah, yeah, I am on, 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 no, it's not that secret, but basically last year we went to Spain. It was amazing. And we all had a great time. It was a huge amount of traveling to get there. I mean, and that's just the nature, especially for us, because we're in the North of England. So, so two days of just getting to a ferry. I would still like to go. I would love to like, they just launched Tet Georgia, which is literally the furthest country <laughs> on the Tet away from us. But my God, that looks incredible. But where the majority of the group are in terms of work and family you know even if you went in a van that's like it's past turkey you know you like four days of non-stop driving just to get there so the only option is like a fly ride kind of thing but we're in the north of england scotland's the big unknown i think there's some amazing roads up there you know the general vibe is you can't ride off road or trail ride in scotland which is not actually true because i go over the border and there are some legit not not very many, but there's some legit, absolutely, you know, it's a trail as ever you've ever seen a trail. And it's got a kind of like a sign on it that says no cars during lambing season. So that means if it ain't lambing season, the cars can be there. So we can be there. But I acknowledge there's not a lot there. So I was just thinking like at the worst case scenario, what would it be like to take lightweight trail bikes through Scotland, end up on an island camping? on a beach with friends, even if no proper trail riding was done, I still think that would be an awesome experience, an awesome trip, an awesome film, all the rest of it. You know, at the end of the day, we're just together having a laugh, aren't we? You know, like we're there's, a lot of, there's a lot of uh, single track tarmac in Scotland. That well, I've ridden, that's ridden the other on, thing. I, I, I think I've ridden on, on road bikes and it's really uncomfortable on road bikes and on trail bikes. It'd be fantastic. Yeah. I think there's a lot of, once you get off like the main stuff, there's, are a lot of roads that are essentially on their way to becoming green lanes because they're just not being maintained. I contacted a friend, an acquaintance really, over the border who uh, we've done some stuff with through Adventure Spec. He's got, um, or in the early stages, setting up a, a motorcycle kind of tour company. I was already in conversation with the Forestry Commission because Scotland's got a huge abundance of forestry. He's been in conversation with them about negotiating access basically does a lot of the rally moto 
events which do the same thing over here so he's kind of looking to to negotiate a similar access over there so i just reached out to him and said we've got this trip there's no real plan about you know where we're going i would love to be able to legally with permission without breaking any laws access some trails and some forestry routes and can you help we're in the process of doing that you know i've had i've been requested for like what's our public liability insurance stuff so i've supplied that information through adventure spec i'm hopeful that we can put together uh, basically you can ride off-road trails in scotland with permission and that's what i'm in the, the process of negotiating we've also got another company that is they do like tours and they've got permission to go certain wet places and everyone would have to bung in a bit of money I'm I'm reasonably reasonably confident we'll get some kind of non-paved stuff, but then I think you know once we get through the middle, and we want to get up into no, you've got more experience than anyone like riding up in Scotland. But I quite like the idea of just being, should we turn left or right and have a yeah, rough yeah. idea of where we're going and not overthink yeah. it. Yeah. But really, the aspiration is go and like have six tents set up on a beach, eat on some amazing island in the uh, outer hebrides which i have done on my bicycle so i know it's near totally a pub possible and some showers <laughs> near a pub and some showers uh the restaurant what bike are you going to take greg i've got my 450 do you trust and i know that if i was if i was on the crf 300l i would just wish i was on the 450 when i've got that 450 it's really hard to get on anything else i've also there's the adventure spec t700 which is probably the most sensible bike if we're not doing trails. But I, yeah, I don't know. Like for the for the narrative, for the film, for the story, for like media, the last bike I should take is the 450 because it's been everywhere and it's nothing new. Uh, I, yeah, I think you, you, I think you'll regret not taking it. What? How did you like that Husqvarna that you rode? The LR. There's yeah, the 701 LR. Yeah. Um. I mean, it felt a bit bigger, a bit heavier than the the than the 450 they felt you know quite i mean that 690 701 the gas gas 700 they're all essentially the same bike. i mean it is like the unicorn bike you know no they're different they're different there's 10 10 there's 10 different and then there's one different so 690 and there's an extra 10 700 <laughs> then it goes to 700 <laughs> 701 that's one isn't it so yeah and in fact there's 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 10 there's one and there's 11 difference isn't there <laughs> And it could be minus 10. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, they are different. You're right. Yeah, you know, the, it is like the most sensible bike for this kind of stuff. But then I also think, like, you're getting a bit, quite a bit of weight penalty. Like, the 450s, like, I, I service mine every 30, 40 hours, and, and that equates to maybe, like, 3,000 miles or something. And I know that, like, Will, on his 690 services his more regularly than the book because of the way that he's writing it so it's kind of i think i said this before but i think you've kind of got these you know got, got this scale and actually on on one end you've got kind of the 690 servicing and on the other end you've got the 450 servicing and actually if you're going to ride your 690 hard you're going to service it sooner if you're riding your 450 not hard you service it later and actually so you end up somewhere near the middle that whole servicing thing becomes a mute point. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, actually you've got more power in a lighter bike that you can have more fun on in the 450 EXC. It's not quite as comfortable. 701 LR was pretty comfortable. It had like heated grips and all the rest of it. For the sheer essence of like 
grin inducing motorcycling i've just not really found anything that does it like that i'm going on my uh, 650l so we'll, if you do take the 450 we'll both be on bikes we've had for quite a long time that we had when we met like 10 years ago years yeah ago. yeah and like i wonder if they're the ones that will kind of have mechanicals i don't know <laughs> but it makes it, it that adds that level of jeopardy doesn't it you know? yeah and that's what we need yeah We're going to Scotland in May. Yeah, end of May, I think. May, June or something. 27th. Have you got Amazon Prime? Yeah. No. There's a really quite a lovely... Do you know George Ezra, the musician? Yeah. So he's just... They've just put a documentary out where he spends three months walking from Land's End to John O'Groats. So it's after lockdown, him and two friends, one of whom's a filmmaker, and they walk all the way up the country. They meet various musicians on the way they go all the way up over the hills fair play take your hat off you know they actually walked it and the bit where they go they go up through like northumberland and hadrian's wall and then they go into scotland and like the minute they get into scotland it's just midgy task they're like proper <laughs> nets and everything i mean well, on one hand like watch it because it's quite a it's a lovely little documentary and then on the other hand like yeah i'm gonna take a midgy net just in case yeah we will i don't think we'll have issues the end of may that'll be fine still early enough in the season yeah yeah does that mean that we will have a film to premiere at the lightweight adventurers festival on the 14th to the 16th of july Mm, don't don't don't, that's mean that's mean six weeks to edit it there might be like an uh, there could be like an early cut that's not finished yet what else are you going to talk about them because you're on our stage did we tell you that yet have you seen the social media you (laughs) need to ask me you know well can we talk about what's the shoot and ride thing what's happened oh yeah yeah all right okay so today i sent the the email out saying that we'd not or I say we, I felt bad after sending that. It should be I, because it's no one else's fault, but we didn't reach our fundraising target. And so the magazine's not going to proceed. Neither shoot nor ride. Neither shoot nor ride. <laughs> There's a level of that that is obviously kind of quite disappointing. But are you but saying also, it's completely dead or just dead for now? Well, it's dead for now. You know, I've got everything I need to make the magazine and people have generously submitted their photos but like I said in that email, like the whole shoot and ride project has been a tool, a mechanism to have ideas and execute those ideas and put them into the world and just see what sticks, you know. And we've and when you look back at it, at what we've done, we've actually done quite a lot of different things. And so the magazine issue one was we went to Spain and we came back from Spain and it was like I was really like frustrated with the fact that I had all these amazing photos, but I didn't want to just put them on Instagram because I felt it was like such a devaluing of it. And so it was like, well, how do we, what, what's the alternative? Do, if I want a printed magazine, maybe other people could do. And, and to be honest, the fundraising target for that was really low. It was like 1500 quid because I actually didn't really know what I was doing and how much time it would take or what it would cost. I just figured if I could do it without it costing me my own money that would be helpful even if i didn't make any money and we kind of smashed that and i think it was about four grand was raised on on the back of that four grand did not go in my pocket i think that each issue so it was it was selling for like i think eight quid for the quantity that i made each issue was costing over five quid and then you got the postage on top 
which is significant. So if you were buying in the UK, it was three quid. If you're buying in America, it was like nine quid. I think I'm trying to remember. So there were maybe like 250 issues were sold in that initial round. I think it was like maybe getting like three quid or something like that per issue. That's 750 quid, like for the amount of time that it took to put the whole project together edit all those photos, put the magazine together, do all of the emails and all the rest of it. It's fine. Like passion project drove quite a lot of that. But I was like, when I moved on to issue two, I was, okay, if I'm going to put my time into this, I cannot do it and do not want to do it for absolutely no return. It needs to minimum pay for itself and open the door to actually generating some kind of income. See, listeners, just goes to show how much me and Noel love you because <laughs> we're getting fuck all out of this. <laughs> so, like, that whole thing, like I said, is over the last few years, I've looked after Ivy, my daughter, on Wednesdays, and that's been me and her all day. Maybe, like, three months ago, four months ago, she started nursery school. No, I'm going to say nursery school, okay, because of the grief that I've got for for sending her to a Waitrose forest school. And so I had like, once I've done all the drop-offs, I've got about four hours of time to myself. And that's the first time in like seven years because of my elder daughter as well that I've had any time to myself because the weekends are not time to yourself. The weekends you spend with the kids and then you're working the rest of the time. So I'm like, well, I've got four hours where no one is hanging off my leg or or wanting me to wipe <laughs> their bum or do any work or do anything. Really, Dave and his bum. I decided to spend those four hours doing that shoot and ride project. And then I've continued to do to do that here. And I'm like, fucking hell, like that time is so valuable. Like there may be times in the other times in my life where that value is not quite the same. But anyway, I was like, I am more than happy to put that time into shoot and ride if the community wants it and we can find a way to make it pay. Also, what I think is, is really important is when you start a side project like this or you're doing what you're doing, you know, with your podcast, which is just for fun, is having the ability to have an end point at which you then decide if you want to continue or not continue. I see a lot of people do stuff that, they get exhausted by and it feels like a real failure for them and for other people following them when they decide I can't do this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. It was about saying, it's almost like if you were going to do something in seasons, your podcast in seasons, it's about saying, I commit to doing six episodes for this season. And when we get to the end of the season, we can continue or not continue, but that's okay because I said I was going to do six. I've done six. I'm going to stop. I think the ability to stop something, especially if in my case, if it wasn't giving me what I needed, stopping is okay. And so actually, if I stop this now because it hasn't achieved what I wanted it to achieve, that's a or that's a reason to stop. And then once I've stopped and had a break, I'll have like the headspace and energy to do something else with shoot and ride and move it forward. Maybe the magazine, there are, I have got some ideas about how the magazine might come go forwards but people are like, oh could you not just do it digitally and all the rest of it and make it into a pdf and it's like well a that defeats the point of the project because it was all about getting physical things in in your hand because that feels quite special and b to create the digital version takes just as much of my time as the physical version 
So if you say at the bare minimum, you were making, I was making three pounds per issue, that physical copy would have to be sold for three pounds. And I don't think people are going to pay for three pounds for a PDF because people have, they expect it for free, unless you can find a different like um, revenue model through advertising or something like that. So the consumer gets it for free. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens. It's going to live on on Instagram though, isn't it? I'm going to keep I don't it. know because like, yeah. does so the Instagram account was only set up a few months ago. Prior to that, it's all um, the hashtag shoot and ride. The actual Instagram account itself is looked after by my friend, Chris, who essentially just doing it out of the love, for, love of it. There's no compelling reason for him to keep going. I don't know. Like, does the world need another motorcycle photo Instagram account? I don't think it does. I think like we're all out there doing that ourselves on our own accounts. I think that's what the hashtag was about was a place to bring all that stuff together. I think a lot of people have connected and made friendships through that, which is wonderful. No, I I think honestly, I feel like Instagram has, it's changed so much over the years and that's another conversation. But um, if you talk about like time being precious, I'm really reluctant to give Instagram any more of my like valuable time. (laughs) Hearing loads of terrible things, right? There's so many people moving away from Instagram at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it, maybe it's a fad. Maybe people come back. I don't know. Mm. Um, it's given me a huge amount. It's helped me make new friends. It's helped me kind of forge a career and all the rest of it. But it's not the same product as it was a year, two years, three, four years ago. You know, it's changed so much. We've got a very interesting little, I wonder if you know all about this. I'm sure you do. But we've got a very interesting little tip, didn't we? Clive off one of our young friends this week oh, yeah. about clicking on the Instagram icon in the top left and which gives you the option once you've just touched clicked on the Insta, on the Instagram logo you get the option just to see who you're following or see the mm. feeds of everyone that you're following mm. I didn't realize that was tucked away there if you want to take a photo of your bike and share it with people it is still a great tool for doing that and really at its essence what I keep coming back to is it's a reason to ride your bike And all of us as motorcyclists, we just want a reason to ride, get on our bikes and go for a ride. You know, there's only so many times you can like ride to like a fish and chip shop a hundred miles away and have fish and chips. And I think that's what shoot and ride does. It gives you a reason to go out, take your bike somewhere interesting, somewhere new and come back with a photo. And you could go to the same place three times and come up with three different photos. And that's for me what, what it's all about. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in kind of like diving into that and, you know, spending some more time, first of all, thinking about it and then doing some little experiments about it. You can't take a photo of your bike at home. You have to like go out and ride it. And I think that's the the essence is basically maybe something that through shoot and ride that are giving people a reason to go out, take their photos, share it. Maybe the magazine comes back because that's a place where, you know, you you sign up to this program. Once you're in, you can then go out, take your stuff, shoot your stuff. And then the magazine is like an annual celebration of what everyone's been doing. And the other element for me personally, that's of of interest is actually running workshops up here in Northumberland, you know, which isn't any help for someone in Estonia, but you know, if you can get yourself up here and spend a long weekend with me going out riding, I think we could all kind of do some pretty cool stuff, make some good friends and learn some new skills and stuff. So that's, another element of it that i'm kind of like looking. i'm just saying i've been riding with you for about 15 years and i can't still still can't take photos well there are some people that are beyond help clive yeah <laughs> i probably should get a camera or something shouldn't i 
But have you enjoyed that riding? That's the important bit, you know? It doesn't matter yeah. if you don't get the photo. Sometimes. <laughs> Massive thanks to Greg for doing that. Some really interesting stuff there. Kind of gives you a whole different perspective on the way companies like Adventure Spec need to operate. If you want to know when the new bits of kit are coming out, I recommend you go to adventurespec.com and sign up to their newsletter. Now, there is a, I think when you first go into the website, a pop-up will appear and you can just put your email address in or if not just scroll to the bottom of the home page and there's a subscribe we have a newsletter and you just type your your email address in and then click on subscribe dead simple there's also a newsletter if you're interested in shoot and ride if you go to gregvillalobos.co.uk and then across the top there's a shoot and ride menu and on that page there is a subscribe for free sticker button click on that all right See you later. Thanks for listening. We really appreciate your support. Don't forget you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And if you really appreciate what we do, you could consider supporting us on Patreon or buy us a coffee. Links are available on our website, which is tampodcast.com, tampodcast.com, where we also have a limited selection of branded stuff. But either way, please keep listening and spreading the word. See you next time.